Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. A very warm welcome to this second session of the Narrative Shift in the Digital Age series, Viral Moments and Hacking the Algorithms, Social Media as a Vehicle for Change. This will be more of a hands-on workshop today and we hope that it will get you up to speed on the latest state of social media and help you design effective ways to tell your stories. So I'm delighted to introduce you to Heather Kinlaw Lofthouse. Heather is leading our session today alongside Inequality Media's Digital Strategist and Operations Manager, Michael Lajanas Calderon. Heather is the Executive Director of Inequality Media and previously served as Director of Special Projects at UC Berkeley's Centre for Developing Economies. Earlier in her career as Managing Director of Absolute Return for Kids, she developed health and education programmes for children in the US and in Latin America. Prior to that, she managed and contributed to a body of research on social franchising for health in Africa and South Asia whilst at UCSF. Heather and Michael, a very warm welcome. Over to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It was so fun to read everyone's bios and see a lot of you have expertise in health. And then I saw two of you work with elders and a lot of you are in communications or have been in communications. So thank you for bringing this expertise to the table to join ours. Thanks for the intro, Catherine. Those are all true statements. I'm a nonprofit executive, but I can't seem to shake academia. And something tells me there are kindred spirits here. There's something about universities and learning and that kind of thing. So I can talk a little bit to inequality media. We've been around for about seven or eight years, and we make digital content about economic inequality, primarily in the U.S., and our main mode of communication is social video. So video that gets put out on social media for better or worse. We are beholden to social media platforms. We try and make it for better. And we try to contextualize what's happening in the news, provide frameworks for people to really glom onto, and then we repeat them a lot. We try to educate, inspire, and engage. Those are our three verbs. And then Michael, Michael really leads our digital strategy as it relates to video with a focus on short form video, picking up on TikTok trends, getting out to young people and optimizing for each platform as the algorithms are changing. Michael ran his college meme page. So he is a digital native through and through. And he also had a stint with the Scottish Parliament. So he is a tremendous asset to this organization, and it's such a pleasure to be sharing the screen with him today. And we hope some of the lessons we've learned and the questions we ask ourselves inspire you all in the work you do. As you know, the title, Viral Moments and Hacking the Algorithm, Social Media as a Vehicle for Change. We wanted to start today by asking what social media platforms do you all use? Be honest. Sometimes Michael and I make generational jokes because, and we'll be talking about this, the difference in ages and behavioral modalities and the way we use social media is interesting. So we're excited to view everyone's responses to this poll and see where we all sit in terms of what platforms we are using. So which of the following social media platforms do you use? Facebook, Big, Twitter, big, Instagram owned by Facebook, YouTube. Okay, we find that YouTube is more synonymous with education, basically because our views are much longer there and that platform really holds people longer. TikTok and other interesting. 
So this seems to be a highly engaged audience as it relates to social media, whether it's for pleasure or work, we don't know, or both. And TikTok is lower. So I have a TikTok account, but I am not on it like Michael is on it, for example. And we will be talking about TikTok today. So I'm pleased to see there are fewer people on that because that's one of the things Michael will focus on so we can all learn more about TikTok. Our work appears on all of those platforms, and we've just launched on Snapchat as well. I imagine that when people said other things that tick that box are probably Snapchat, potentially, maybe Reddit. With no further ado, I think, Michael, I will pass you the mic figuratively. Happy to go. And then I'll toss it back to Heather later. First of all, it's a pleasure to be chatting with all of you this morning. Definitely interesting to see who's where. I'm not terribly surprised by these numbers, especially given how long the meta universe of apps has been around and how deep their tendrils reach in so many things. YouTube is also especially not surprising. This is actually from one of my favorite resources to use just to get my checkup on where things are in the social media world. Hootsuite, not an ad for them, I promise. They are a social media management, content management system, but they also do these really great reports on how people are using social and where they are. As you can see, Facebook big, YouTube, unsurprisingly rather big. I can't say that we have a WhatsApp presence, though we have had, I was actually just on with someone else at our other social media management company place. And they said, yeah, we have WhatsApp integrations now. So maybe you should consider it. So maybe we will, but this is where the world's eyes are. And we try our best to be where the eyes are at. In particular, we have a focus on YouTube, YouTube and Facebook, because that's where we started organizationally. We do explainer content. And that's also where people tend to spend a lot of their time, whether they be at work or somewhere else or passing the time. In particular, YouTube, I find that extremely long videos are quite popular because people like to have something on in the background or they're willing to go there for educational content and many documentaries or even full-length documentaries. So we found that it's a really great place to expand our presence I think the big surprise for many of you, perhaps, but definitely for me, was the growth of TikTok in the last year or two. Some attributed it to being a pandemic fad, but I think it has had more staying power than people have realized. In particular, it's had more staying power with education and educators in particular. I follow a couple of educators on there who are really quite brilliant. In addition, of course, to our brilliant educator, Robert Reich, who we are very grateful to be working with. It's very conducive to all sorts of personalities and to learning in ways that I think people might have dismissed two years ago because you're thinking to yourself, well, it's just for dancing. It's not just for dancing, though we will make you do a little bit because it's a good way to convey a message. We do a lot of work here in the U.S., primarily in the U.S., frankly. So we're especially interested to see where people in the U.S. are looking, though some of these lessons can obviously be applied elsewhere. When I'm looking at these stats, I really like to know not just where everybody is, but where young people in particular are at. And it's so fascinating to see because even in my anecdotal interactions with younger people, a lot of them aren't using social media in the way that even people in the millennial generation were. A lot of the time, less frequently than adults who have now fully made the transition onto platforms like Facebook in a way that has, for lack of a better phrase, made it a little less cool. So teens and young 20s folks, they're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, And yes, they are still on Instagram to some extent, though I'm sensing a bit of a waning interest in that. 
you have to ask yourself, why is this intergenerational difference? And I think that's dependent on the platform you're looking at. I don't know how many of you use Snapchat or how globally it's used necessarily, but when I was in college, not terribly long ago, we didn't really view it as a social platform, but it's starting to brand itself as a social platform. And that's why we just happened to get on it. Because in addition to just being peer-to-peer communication, they now have something called the Discover page, which is algorithmic distribution of news and entertainment and whatever other content from actual brands, in some cases monetized, but in a way that it would be like an Instagram feed or a Facebook feed. Personally, I found that shocking because I'd never viewed Snapchat as something that would be used for that. It just felt like WhatsApp or something, just peer-to-peer messaging. Not a whole lot of older people on Snapchat, I think, for a variety of reasons. YouTube, pretty universal in adoption, which is why we like it. If you look at our age distribution graphs, we actually get a pretty big 65 plus crowd on YouTube, which I was always quite surprised to see. TikTok, Twitter skew a bit younger as well. When you're looking at these platforms and you're making content for them, or you're just trying to share your organization's mission, goals, successes, learning opportunities, you want to be able to craft messages that are going to appeal to the demographics that are using them the most. Sometimes it's stylistic. Sometimes it's literally the type of content. There are some platforms where people are going to be bigger readers. And obviously, TikTok is video first. So we wanted to take a little bit of a top-level view of what does it mean to be making content in the internet today? And what level of energy is right for you? I've put together some rough categories. These are not perfectly defined, and they can be a little blurry, as social media is. But generally speaking, I think that you've got this no-lift category, which I think a lot of orgs that don't really have a dedicated comm staff can find themselves in because, quite frankly, that's all you have time for. You have maybe one platform of focus a couple of years ago that might have just been Facebook. Today, it could be something else. It could be Twitter, perhaps even just TikTok, I found, given that that is a platform that really encourages and allows for insane algorithmic growth just because of how rapidly the content is going by. There are brands on there that I've seen grow from nothing in days or weeks, all organically too. That's changing a little bit, but I'll get to that. In terms of what that means, that could be one platform of focus for video, you're retweeting, you're reposting, you're not producing anything in-house. That's okay. If that's what you can do, that's totally fine. But when you start thinking about, okay, how can we get a little more online? How can we be presenting ourselves in different ways? That's when maybe you've got your baseline platform like Facebook, and then maybe a non-traditional platform like TikTok, which I've seen people start to do. They're exploring beyond maybe the 20,000 Twitter followers that their org has had for 10 years or the 50,000 Facebook followers, 20,000 of whom never go on Facebook anymore. So this is really just focusing on those two platforms and knowing that you have a strategy for each and knowing that they're different. So if you're doing Facebook, for example, you're doing a little bit of image work, not as many videos, probably more text posts, sharing news links. Link posts are very big on Facebook these days, we've found. Then on the video side, maybe you have a staff member or a round table or some sort of event stuff. I've seen this from a couple of think tanks and news organizations, the lowest lift possible. Like you don't have a video editor on staff, you don't want to pay. And again, totally fine. Probably not going to be the most engaging video content, but there is an audience for that sort of thing online, sometimes on YouTube, sometimes elsewhere. Then you start to get into the range of what we do, which is medium to high lift. Medium lift, I think this is, you've got a real comm staff. You're on the main platforms. You've got a Facebook, you got a Twitter, you got a YouTube, and then maybe you've just branched out into TikTok. You've got somebody on staff or someone you contract with, you can do videos. Maybe you've got a little bit of a brand graphics 
package. That's what we have. I find that particularly useful, even if it's just establishing a little bit beyond what your brand guide would be. These are the colors we use. This is the font we use. Getting a consistent look is, I think, fairly important, not just for recognition of who you guys are consistently by people who don't necessarily know you, but it adds a bit of professionalism beyond just a watermark or a logo. And I found, at least personally, that's appealing to me when I can start to recognize that. High Lift, I don't know if any of you have seen the fantastic new movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. I left that movie theater a wreck, but fantastic film. This is when you have a team fully dedicated to it, multiple people. And that's where I think we're at. We're expanding, we're branching out into platforms that a year or two ago, we might've said, why would we do that? We're on Snapchat, we're on TikTok, and we're posting on LinkedIn as well, which is not one that a lot of people think about. But I'll give a special call out right now, actually, because as maybe some of you have found, there are a lot of policy decision makers who scroll LinkedIn, as it turns out, particularly people in your network or people who you might want in your network. And it's a surprisingly robust network for discourse and interesting people may find your work. But that's, again, only if you're in the situation where you feel you've got the staff, you've got the time, but we're thinking about. And then in terms of the video side, that's when you're at our level. You've got contract video editors. Maybe you have a video editor on staff. Maybe you're even producing short documentaries about your work or in conjunction with some other organization. And that's projects that take weeks or months even. I think it's just important to keep this in mind and understand that when you start getting into the medium and high lift, that is truly creating a different department in your org. I think it's important to recognize it as such because otherwise you're going to find yourself everywhere all at once and quite overwhelmed. In terms of what the platforms want, and these aren't going to be true 100% of the time because these things are always changing, but some general guideposts that might be helpful. Facebook, and I'll caveat this with every meta product is changing constantly because they are afraid of their competition. In particular right now, it's TikTok. Historically, I think text-based posts, anything with a link, link posts, because that's a little bit easier to track metrics-wise as well, tend to be good. Things that are shareable, sometimes you see these sort of top text, bottom text, for lack of a better phrase, again, political memes or just memes in general, inspirational quotes, that sort of thing. You've seen them probably. They're in the one-one frame. People love that stuff on Facebook. It's very easy to share elsewhere. And if you have a compelling message, you can cram into that or something that you want to draw attention to. It's a vehicle for communication. I'll tell you that. We've also found that on Facebook, video in particular suffers when it's under three minutes long which attention spans being what they are these days, even with TikTok, I personally found a bit surprising. As I said, though, this is changing a little bit as Facebook has just introduced something called Facebook Reels, which is like their Instagram Reels, which I'll get to in a minute. It's essentially a TikTok clone. So anything under 60 seconds in a vertical format, you can upload to Facebook. They do okay. I think that not everybody on Facebook, particularly because you're looking at an older demographic who's less familiar with TikTok, they're not quite there yet, but we'll have to watch in the next few months to see if they stick around. Instagram, generally speaking, again, informative or hard-hitting shareable images, square or four by five, which is a slightly taller box. I believe it is 1080 by 1350. We found that both videos and images in that size actually fill the screen more in your feed, and that keeps your eyes on that one piece of content. It's not the place where I would put an hour long thing. I would say three minutes to 15 minutes. I can't imagine spending more than 15 minutes on a Facebook video personally. So I'll put that as my upper bound. But general rule of thumb, I would say is YouTube is where you're gonna wanna put your longer content because view duration, while still important on Facebook, it's really gonna benefit you on YouTube in particular. Instagram, also doing a bunch of crazy stuff. Images, we found tweet screenshots of viral tweets do well. 
We viewed our most successful platforms as sort of organic A-B testing for what will work on other platforms. If we have a tweet that goes super viral, we think to ourselves, what can we distill from that? And how can we either literally copy paste it, screenshot it onto another platform or reformat it into a short video or touch on the same theme in a link post on Facebook, that sort of thing. Instagram, so many things that they're trying right now. Reels is big, so vertical video as well. That's less than a minute, again. I think that Reels is actually a really interesting opportunity for growth because they're desperate to compete with TikTok. So they're really, really pushing it in everybody's feeds. Sometimes we have Reels videos that do better than TikTok videos and they're the same thing. So worth giving it a try. 1080 by 1080 square is generally what I'd recommend for photos, just because that's what's traditional. And you could do a four or five for a photo too. That is the slightly bigger, taller one. I think it's 1080 by 1350. It might be worth experimenting with. We personally haven't done a ton on the photo side beyond the tweet screenshots, just because that's what works for us. But I think the same principle of it, filling more of your mobile phone screen will still apply because they won't look above or below. Instagram, such a funny platform. I'll be very curious to see how many of these new features that they're experimenting with stick around or if they get tired of competing and just give up and decide to do something else. But we shall see what Mark Zuckerberg decides. Now, TikTok, this is the tricky one, but the most exciting one. I find that because you have so many of these TikTok clones on every platform, that's Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, Facebook Reels. Those are the big ones. Anything you make for TikTok that's less than a minute can be repurposed for those other platforms, those other vertical short video platforms within the other ones specifically. We have found that a mix of leaning into whatever is trending on TikTok, whether it be a particular sound or an actual trend, the only one I can think of is from two years ago off the top of my head, where there were these people driving around in cars with bottles of ocean spray cranberry juice to a Fleetwood Mac song. Politicians got in on it, brands got in on it, all sorts of other examples. The point is, as long as you have someone who's paying attention and you feel that there's an opportunity to jump in that is relevant to you or you can make relevant to you, it's worth giving it a shot because it doesn't have to be very long. On the flip side of that, you can also do slightly longer content, which is something I've found that TikTok is actually starting to branch into. It used to be you could only post videos that were 60 seconds, then it was three minutes. And for select people, it's now up to 10 minutes. I would have expected TikTok to stay on the shorter bound, but they're trying to compete with YouTube. We've put our actual explainer content up there. We put stuff that's three to five minutes long up there. Some of them have done well. I think if you're on the slightly longer side, unless it's a super compelling piece of content, it's probably not going to do as well, but it can. I would suggest staying under three minutes just because it seems like there's a little bit of an algorithmic benefit to staying under that three minute mark. We've tried really short explainers. And if you can condense the information or theme that you're trying to convey into less than a minute, there is a benefit to that as well, because TikTok enables these features called duet or stitch, where other users can engage with your content by either taking the first few seconds, which is a stitch, and then adding their commentary to it afterwards, or a duet where they're side by side. And those features, based on my own experience, not only drive eyeballs to your original video when someone else posts it, but provide like a little bit of an algorithmic benefit. TikTok and vertical platforms are, in summary, the best place for organic growth for everybody right now, because they're all desperate to drag the followers from different platforms to their platform in particular. And until that settles, I think that it's worth trying. So going to YouTube, not YouTube Shorts, which even though it's the same platform, I'll distinguish because I think that they're different things. Longer form videos, I think it was around seven minutes or longer when you start to see a real algorithmic benefit. Not to say shorter videos can't be successful, but I think it just boosts your opportunity for the view duration to be higher, thus 
distributing it to other people because YouTube loves iteration. Consistent posting, that can mean a consistent posting schedule, like the same time every week. I think people appreciate that. But even just being consistently active in some form or another, if people see you in their feeds more often, they're more likely to click. On the subject of clicking, I do a lot of our thumbnails. The preview image for a video, many are very clickbaity, and that's the whole point. I think it's a balance between clickbait and what is appropriate for your org or mission. There are ways to do it. And we try to be at least a little less clickbaity than the rest. An example from our side of things is if on YouTube, we design an image that's the first thing you see on screen as you're scrolling or as you're signing in on your laptop. If we do things that are a little snarky or a little sassy or have more emotion, maybe it's Bob, for example, wide-eyed or it's text that says, are you kidding me? That kind of thing where you're teasing the emotion more than you're teasing the content gets people in. Now we have a fine line. We're educational. Michael was talking about style guides earlier. What are your colors? Some of the adjectives we use to describe our work are homespun, authentic, and professorial. So if we're looking for those kinds of things, we don't want to do the trashy stuff that gets more eyeballs on YouTube. So it's been interesting to really think about the thumbnail, as Michael calls it, which is that image and how to get people in and riding the line of what's going to have people stop and say, ooh, including compared to what, because there is so much people are looking at, but also maintaining your values and your style as you want it. I think we ride that line well, but it's been an internal discussion to try and refine that balance between clickbait, as Michael said, which can be kind of basic, too snarky if you're not careful, and then getting eyeballs in. Definitely. And a good way to constantly be evaluating yourself. We love the tool TubeBuddy, or at least I do. It's one of the easier tools out there that enables A-B testing of assets on YouTube. You can put up two thumbnails in the back end. And let's say you put a video up on Monday. On Tuesday, it'll switch it to thumbnail B. On Wednesday, it goes back to A. And then it'll run until you get statistical significance. Or you can run it longer if you want better data. Always be experimenting. So Twitter. Obviously, Twitter is concise, short. Brevity is the soul of wit and so forth. If there are themes that are really important to your organization that can be condensed in less than 280 characters, even if it's just one point, it might be worth trying. In particular, if there's a little bit of an emotional or a shocking hook or fact that you can get people with at the beginning of that tweet to bring them into the rest of your point, we find you can get engagement. We've done a little bit with threads and threading, just to be clear, is a multi-tweet post. I've seen some successful threading. If you have something that you really want to go deeply into, sometimes those can be good. Video-wise, I personally have seen video not do super well on Twitter. This is true of looking at any metrics for video on any platform, by the way. Be sure to dig in and see, am I looking at views at the top level and believing them? Or am I looking at what it says on the back end for how many people watch past the first 15 seconds or up to a minute? Because those are the numbers that I think no social media or digital strategist ever wants to really look at, but it's the numbers you should be looking at. On Twitter, for instance, they'll give you these views that are like the first few seconds or the first 1% of the video was watched. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, 100,000 views. Well, okay, maybe in reality, only 20,000 people watched it. Not to say you can't have a successful viral video on Twitter. There are plenty, but it's definitely a place where I think we found ourselves being a little more hard-nosed at the numbers. Like, okay, what's our metric of success? And that's true on Facebook as well, because the number you see is going to be three-second views. How much can you say in the first three seconds? 
generally speaking, you want to be engaging with your audience when you can. And on all of these platforms, we love to comment and interact when possible. People love being part of a conversation, more engagement, i.e. the things that you see on the screen, likes, comments, shares, but in particular comments, has the opportunity to spread whatever content that you're sharing even further because these platforms will say, oh, it looks like a lot of people are engaged. There's a discourse happening. There's conversation. One metric that a lot of people like to see is the ratio of likes to views as well as comments to views. And when you see that there are, let's say, a thousand comments to a video that has 10,000 views or something, that's like, oh, okay, there was a conversation going on there and maybe I want to jump in. Or I can see that the creator themselves are in the conversation. And so I'm going to want to revisit this because there's the opportunity to interact with the creator later on. On the subject of TikTok, because that's just where I spend most of my time, I found when you can put a human face to it, to your org or to your brand or to whatever you're doing and have that human face interact with people, even just replying to comments with video, that stuff is big, particularly if it's questions that a lot of people might have about whatever it is you do. On vertical platforms, which is best suited for newbies? I think if you're going to start anywhere for a vertical platform, it should be TikTok and not the clones, just because there's the opportunity for more growth and also almost credibility, I guess. Nobody's going to come out and say, I'm an Instagram Reels influencer. If you can imagine your favorite brand, imagine the brand that's worse than that, that pretends to be better than that brand. That's how people tend to feel. But TikTok influencer has its own limitations as well. I find that people that start on TikTok and branch out, they tend to find success. But the beauty of the vertical platforms is you don't really have to limit yourself to one. You can repurpose that video and just boom, 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 upload it at the same time. And you're not making four, you're making one for four platforms. Moving on, outrage. This is something we think about a lot. How closely do you want to be writing moments of outrage? And when should you not? The general rule of thumb, at least for myself, it's always important to take a step back, particularly if it's something that's close to you or your work, and think about. Do we have anything internally that we've already decided that we're going to say on this? Do we have things we've previously said on this, this moment of outrage or this moment of intense feeling? And how can we meaningfully contribute to the conversation? And is it worth it to contribute to the conversation in a way that we know could get engagement, but won't necessarily reflect well on us later? It's a hard question because when you're on these platforms, you're getting the dopamine hit. You see the likes going up sometimes. You see the retweets, the hearts. And it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking that because a post went viral, it was good. That's an important distinction to make with anything that you're doing. You could be putting out some really great content and it might not go super viral. It might not have a great reach. And that's not because it's bad. It's just about strategizing how to distribute it a little better. So outrage is where you can drive a call to action. You just have to use it carefully. There's a measured form of outrage. And sometimes we use that as well. Like if it's a righteous form of outrage and you want people to sign a petition or call their representatives, that I think is a good way to channel it. If there's a productive way to channel it, I'm usually in favor if it feels like it's the right moment. So a little more nitty gritty, trickle down content economics. Now you might've heard about trickle down economics, not real, not a thing, but trickle down content economics is something that I like to think is a little real. Maybe you have one place at the very top of your social media chain that has your best content or your favorite content or your most explanatory content, whatever you think is your gold star stuff. And you're going to want to draw on that and have it trickle down into these other platforms in a format that makes sense for it. 
you can pull from the 20 page report that you did on rivers and waterways, for example, let's say you're a nature org and you can say, all right, this is a great factoid that can make a tweet about how 30% of all the rivers are gone. Oh no. Or maybe it's a TikTok and you can show a visual of that particular river or that particular place or that particular person, an expert who wrote the report, who can talk about it and hold it up and say, look, I wrote this awesome thing. Let's talk about it. If something has succeeded on one platform, there is always the possibility it will succeed somewhere else. I talked a little bit ago about informal A-B testing, and that's just how I would view any of your successful content. Let's give it a go. Let's see what we can transform it into for somewhere else. Same with reusing other content that you've already made. Like if you have a 10-minute video or a 10-minute Q&A with someone or a 30-minute Q&A with someone, and you've gotten to the point where you're at a medium-lift place with your organization, maybe it's a Q&A from a year ago, but it's relevant today. You could have your comms person or your editor or whomever go back and pull out a one-minute snippet for TikTok, pull out a five-minute clip that can go on Facebook or YouTube, or you could even just take out some quotes, throw them in a Twitter thread, and then post the link to the full thing. Just some potential ideas. It's all very dependent on what you're drawing from here. Can I add one thing to this, which I think is important to note? We've learned it over time here. I like the phrase content farming, but there's also what one person called the content harvest. So it really is make all that you can out of what you have. But I wanted to specify some things. First of all, it's what you have. As Michael said, maybe a Q&A you did or some kind of brochure that you made and there's one particular graphic on it that looks fabulous. You could lean into that. But the other thing is I would say don't shy away from using other people's content as well as part of this. For example, if there is someone in your field who has said a specific quote at an event, you can put that up as well. And then you can comment on it in the copy, or you can make it part of a carousel, as we say on Instagram, or you can lead with it on a video. I'm reacting to so-and-so saying blank yesterday. I want to flag the importance of this content harvest and this reuse and repurposing. It doesn't have to be your organic content and your organization's content every time. In fact, as you're starting up, pull from other people that people might know better than you and get associated with them and get associated with someone who curates good things in your field. When you reuse existing content in new ways, it can be other people's. That's kosher. Being derivative, I feel like used to be pejorative and negative and plagiarism, not in social media. It's curation in social media when you use other people's content. So I wanted to make a plug for that. Thanks for letting me interrupt. I'd even add on to that. When I think about how we can jump into viral moments, which is something that we do on occasion, sometimes we literally insert ourselves into a viral clip, whether it be you play the first few seconds of a viral clip that someone else has raised, whether it be from a news network or a public access channel, whatever. And Bob will sometimes have him cut in after five or 10 seconds and give his response. So you've drawn people in with the clip that maybe they haven't seen or they want to see again because it was so controversial, outrageous, interesting. And then they're hooked in for your perspective. Or my favorite example, there was a very interesting Kim Kardashian interview where she talked about the importance of work and her perspective on work. And we literally intercut Bob as if he was in the same studio as her having a conversation with her about it. Disagreeing, I would add, but having a conversation. Those are just a couple of ways that you could experiment. And the last point, there are a couple organizations, news-ish or news tangential that I've seen on Twitter in particular rise in popularity because they have their own original content, but they'll be the first to grab the newsy clip. And that will be the one version of the clip that goes viral first. 
and has the simultaneous benefit of building their brand plus distributing this very important, outrageous, interesting clip elsewhere. And of course, building their reputation for being the first place you go for something newsworthy, very interesting. And then using new low-lift content as a springboard, whether that be Q&A or existing reports, things you already have. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, as the saying goes. You don't have to start from nothing. And it will take a little time, perhaps, to go through what you might think is the most interesting stuff that you've already made, but it can be worth it to just get a handle on what it is before you dive right in. But also, you could probably do both at the same time if you have the right size team. One person to do the archival diving and then the other person to experiment. And speaking of people, people are extremely important, as we all know and agree. It's important to think about who's in your organization outside of maybe the person who runs the social media account. Do you have an intern? Do you have another staffer? Do you have an expert? Do you have anybody who might not seem that they're interested in doing any sort of written or video content, but they might surprise you? We've found just watching other organizations, they'll pull in the policy person who wrote the interesting paper and they'll do a video. The Washington Post is an interesting example of a news organization experimenting with this in that they have their TikTok video first staff who condense the news into fun and exciting trends that are relevant to the platform. But sometimes they'll use it as an opportunity to allow the other reporters to make cameos. And sometimes those reporters will jump in with a very thorough analysis of a situation that they're working on or an article that they're working on or an article that's just been published. And you get to introduce your audience that may only be familiar with the theoretical public face of your organization, the people who do a lot of the other work. It's important to realize that as concentrated as the internet may feel now, especially since there are so few big social media platforms that are controlled by the same person, at least a couple, it's still full of niches or very specific communities within those big, massive platforms. And on vertical video platforms in particular, I found it doesn't take very long for you to get delivered to your niche if you post consistently within that niche. You're an organization that cares about water and nature. You start posting a lot of videos that you might have of beautiful nature or talking about these interesting papers you've published on the environment. Within a few weeks, you're going to probably end up primarily being served to people who have an interest in that sort of thing, environmentalists, let's say. And that's going to help you build a core audience much faster than I think I've seen on any other platform, which is very exciting. We found all of the people who were interested in politics and economics and news fairly quickly on that platform. And occasionally, you'll have the opportunity to branch into an even bigger, broader audience that might only be interested in one of those things. But the algorithm has decided, well, if you're interested in one of those things, maybe you're interested in all of these things. I keep talking about TikTok, if only because it is so quick, not just to know who you are, which is a little scary, but the way it figures it out is just because the content is so short. You're giving it so much more data to determine exactly where you want to go. And even if you're just lingering on a video, which speaks to the importance of hooks in these videos as well, you want those first few seconds to always give the person a reason to linger, whether it be that interesting factoid, that shocking factoid, that beautiful image. Whatever you can do to keep them there for the first few seconds is going to determine the view duration for the rest of that video and thus the success of the video. It's also a way for anybody who does the comm stuff to interact with the rest of your staff and get them to better understand each other. There are a lot of times I've seen orgs have people who do comms that are very competent and very good, but maybe they don't have the perfect understanding of the mission, or they would benefit from a deeper understanding of some of the work you're doing. It's a great way to train up anybody whose primary job is social media on the ins and outs of what you actually do and vice versa. Also, it gives you an opportunity to collaborate with like-minded organizations, which I find very exciting as well. So 
worth considering. Authenticity. As I'm sure some of you have seen, particularly on places like Twitter, brands sometimes act like people. Duolingo is a big example of this brilliant strategy in that they insert themselves in literally every conversation that they can, commenting on viral videos and also building this brand reputation with this owl mascot of being very cool and trendy. That's not for everyone because not everybody loves a brand acting like a person. I think that there's a difference between being authentic and pretending to be human. And it's a little disturbing sometimes when you see the wall of brands on Twitter interacting with each other and saying, wow, that's so exciting, Disney. Thanks, Wendy's. That's not real. It's the appearance of the real, but it's a little strange. So I think it's important that when you're interacting with other organizations or brands or people as your brand, that you're aware of what you want your digital etiquette standards to be. You don't want to go out and embarrass yourself just because you think there's the opportunity to go viral. And that's a very hard line to walk, I think, particularly on newer platforms like TikTok, where the trends are a little silly. But I think it's important to know yourself, know what your limits are, and that's okay. You don't have to be in every viral moment. And I think a lot of brands have learned the hard way that inserting themselves into the wrong viral moment can be detrimental to their brand because people are going to say that was not appropriate. But it's still important to present your best self. And I appreciate that platforms like TikTok in particular make it easier for real passion to show through. If you have somebody who's really passionate about the work or the research or the advocacy that they're doing, it's going to shine. People are going to recognize that and they're going to appreciate that. And this is a moment of authenticity in a lot of ways. As I said, messages that genuinely reflect your mission and the way that you're proud of is really important. That's the core of all of this. We can give you all the social media pointers in the world, and there are all kinds of influencers who could do the same. But it's really important to stop and ask yourself, is this really what we want to be doing? If it means not being the most viral brand in the world, I think that's okay. It's not all about the numbers. It's about putting forth the best version of you and your organization. What should you do and not do when your audience is trying to engage with you and also if you happen to go viral or if your work happens to go viral? Do, as we said before, repurpose because it's an opportunity to A-B test organically. Do comment. That doesn't mean you have to go in and correct every person who's made a mistaken assumption about what you've done. But if there are easy ways to further educate your audience and be the top comment in whatever you've posted, it's worth it. And people will appreciate being engaged with. As I said, it's an opportunity for growth, more education, and encouraging people to follow you elsewhere. Or if you have a call to action at that particular time, for instance, we recently just launched Robert's course, Wealth and Poverty. And so on some of our more viral content, I've been making a point of going in the comments when people have asked, oh, I really wish I could have taken your class or something similar and saying, you can go here. Don't overreact. The internet is a cesspool. It's awful. It's also wonderful. But if you're in the comments all the time or your comm staff or whomever is responsible for being online looks at the comments too much, it's going to hurt depending on what you're doing. And so it's important to take a step away, respect yourself. Your mental health is important because at the end of the day, it's a comment on the internet, not to say it can't hurt. I've been there, but you got to keep going. You got to give yourself some time and space. Don't become stale. Don't make everything the same as whatever succeeded once. Variety is the spice of life. It's very important. And your audience will also appreciate that you're trying new things. You can have staple kind of content if it's successful, but if you don't surprise people every once in a while, they might look away. Don't obsess. This also goes for looking at all of these stats all the time. It's important to have a sense of what your metrics are. It's important to understand what your growth looks like. But if you have a slow month, it's a slow month. Next month might be different. And if you're stuck in those slow months, 
that just means maybe it's time to try something different. And that's okay. And another of our colleagues once told me, particularly on a place like TikTok, but also true of elsewhere, people are going to see your successes and they're not going to see your failures just by virtue of how these platforms work. So I will hand it off to Heather. Thank you, Michael, for talking to us about all of these things. Michael is behind many of our most viral videos. And by that, I mean, he conceived of them and shot them, usually on an iPhone, and also edited them. So here we are. We're an organization. We have eight hours in the day, if not more. What can we plan for? And how do you plan for viral moments? How do you plan for what the news is going to have in exactly an hour that's going to be a huge blast across the internet. You can't plan for it, or can you? I think the answer is both. Planning and spontaneity. You want to plan to be spontaneous. Super helpful, I know. What we do at Inequality Media is we have basically a whole content media strategy and a few tools, which are somewhat obvious, spreadsheets of sorts, Google Docs, these community tools that we use that we're all referring to. And as we plan our content, the first thing we're always reminding ourselves is what is our mission? Our mission is education and engagement. I think we've all lived this and studied it, this idea of mission drift in nonprofits in particular with these kind of cause-oriented groups that we're all engaged with. We've got to stay on mission, and especially in the world of social media and the internet. It's so easy to drift to something new. So constantly ask yourself, what is the mission? Next would be asking yourself, what are your goals? How can the social media support your mission? And what are your goals? Are they education? Are they fostering deeper engagement? Is it recruiting volunteers for an upcoming event? Is it brand recognition? You're trying to get more eyeballs on things. Is it fundraising? And then is your content designed for those goals? Looking back, there's this constant iteration and thinking about, did I do well with the fundraiser? Did I get the money I wanted? Could I have phrased it differently? Could I have done it shorter? Should I have done it as a video? Should I have done it as a static post? So constantly iterating and thinking is the way we built something. Did it achieve what we wanted it to? And if not, let's try again. How do you know if you've been successful? You set out metrics at the beginning and some of it's organic or innate. You think, okay, that was actually more successful than I thought. I was only thinking a couple people would look at it or I was only expecting a couple volunteers to sign up, but I got more. And then on social media, obviously what Michael's been talking about is how did it do in terms of engagements, likes, and views? So we are constantly asking ourselves these questions And we do routine reviews. Let's look back at what we did over the past week, two weeks, quarter. Did we achieve our goals? In terms of planning, we want to create resources we need to be able to plan effectively, but also be nimble and quickly take advantage of trending topics. So we try and build up a scaffolding to allow us to do both things. So we can come online with some evergreen content every day. We have some go-to things, but then also get ready for the newest trend. As many of you know who are on Twitter, the trends page is updated constantly. And we could be saying, okay, quickly, we got to tie into that thing. We've got to tie into, God forbid, but an earthquake over there. We've got to tie into somebody saying something strange. We've got to tie into the no confidence vote that could be happening in the UK. So we could spend all our time, but instead, and this applies to a lot of us, our goals are education and engagement. So part of it is the long game. So we try and do a perfect, sometimes, mesh of the two. 
How do we keep repeating our key messages and tie them into a moment of the day with how do we ride a trend? And so we really try and do both. The tools we use are editorial calendars, a content planning calendar. We have databases of information. So we have our go-to facts that we try and update regularly. We really pull out the kind of aha wild ones that make people go, wait, 40% of people voted blank on blank. And then we have prepared social media copies. So we literally have just a few sentences, often with data, that we have prepared that can go up. Now we can tweak them, but we also know what's worked in the past. When we have something that does really well, we will do a version of that on our copy Bible, if you will, and we can pull from it then. Editorial calendars, again, not brain surgery and rocket science. But what upcoming moments are happening that we could tie into? So we have economics moments, we have political moments, is there a holiday, and then notes. And we look at this weekly, and it is the responsibility of a couple members on our team to constantly be looking at it, because tools are only as good as the users of them. We all know this. This organization, we all tried to use a project management software called Asana, didn't really stick. So then we tried a new one called monday.com. That's working better for us. So I do want to remind people that the calendars and the editorial thinking is only as good as you actively using it. The next one after the calendar is more of content planning. So we'll sit down with our team of content designers and we'll say, okay, for example, what should we be doing on Twitter? And what can be prepared in advance and be part of this evergreen category of work that we have? And then what absolutely cannot be planned for? So let's think about and categorize what are these things we're posting? What categories do they fall into? And then look at the week, what works. So for us, often it's a video tweet, either a new video or a reposting of an old one. And then we have news-related content that's highlighted green because that cannot be prepared in advance necessarily. And then we want to be hitting on things like data visualizations. That's something that's really important for us as a tool in educating. So this is an example of a planning calendar for Twitter in particular. And then a different version of a content planning calendar that has multiple platforms on it. We're literally looking at different times of the day and what is the content pillar? So what is the category that piece of content falls into? Is it our educational goal? Is it promotion, brand building? Is it entertainment? Is it something which has to do with brand building, but it's going to be less pedagogy as such, and maybe just something that's leaning towards outrage and balancing all of those and looking at all of these on the different platforms. The other thing I want to make a plug for here is we use a program called Sprout Social. And Sprout Social allows us to schedule content. So when you're a nimble team, you can think about what are some things I want to put out today, this afternoon when I have meetings, and you can put them in in the morning and go about your day. So we definitely recommend Sprout Social. Back to the point of content harvest for the people around you in your ecosystem doing similar work, ride their coattails. This isn't plagiarism. This is curation, but really ride other people. There are so many experts doing this work. There is not a dearth of information. If there's something in the news that's about, say, productivity and growth, we have a database where we go in and we say, ooh, this is a good data visualization about that. So maybe we put the content for the day. Did you see the latest thing that happened in X place? Reminder of the larger trend. And we put a data visualization in there. So again, it's how can we build our resources so that we're ready in a newsy moment to tether one of our broader claims to it. And then our content bank. 
Our content team, Michael's on it. We're all kind of on it, but someone who on our team leads this work has pages of potential tweets at the ready. So it's things like inequality is a policy choice. And then we have an example of why is it the case? We have the power to change things. We end with a sentence that's really powerful. Back to the spontaneity part. When you're on social media, you have to live and breathe it. That means you can't phone it in, especially on Twitter. If you're not leaning into the trends, bottom line, your content is not going to do as well. So follow what's trending and connect it to your existing work. The other thing we do is we create lists of people to follow who energize your thinking, whose content you can use, who you're showing solidarity and respect by retweeting them. So use others. Remember that you're not operating in a vacuum. That has to do with engagement too. If you engage with theirs, they engage with you and it kind of pays it forward. Look for ways to engage in real conversations with people online because that is real time. Real time conversations are going to be about what's happening in the now. And then finally, some of the most successful content comes from moments of inspiration. Something's happening immediately and there's a connection, there's a click, and you come up with some fabulous sentence. All that to say, you can't plan your life away on social media. Unfortunately, you've got to be in the middle of it all. And ideally, it will lead to good things. Just a couple examples of how it's the case that we've ridden the news waves. And some of these examples are grim, so I apologize, but this is the nature of living in the United States right now. So, for example, we have a news story that's in Proud Boys leader, four others charged with seditious conspiracy for our January 6th insurrection. I hate even using this as an example. But what did we do and what did Bob do from his page? We did a quote on fascism. Fascism thrives when violence and destruction become the norm. We must not become inured to bloodshed and massacres. We must speak out. So often what we do is we tweet about what's happening. There's another term we wanted to flag for you, which is called a subtweet. Now that means we did not use the term proud boys. We did not say January 6th, but we spoke about the issue in this way that I would say is talking about frameworks. It's talking about the meta points. It's talking from a professorial lens. I think the power of subtweets are incredibly important. So it's one degree away from actually mentioning the thing that's trending, but you get in the flywheel of the trend because you're signaling and you're talking about related issues and about the issue from a slightly different perspective. And then a couple other examples are when Boris Johnson and the vote of no confidence, which was a vote of confidence, as I see, snuck by. We talked about Britain. We use that as an example to say, good on the UK and England for passing windfall profits taxes. That's another example of what's trending. Let's tie something we've already been talking about into that. Wow. So much content, so much to think about. My sense is that this isn't an exact science. We have to be continually experimenting. And I think the point we're making about walking the line between being clickbait and putting out stuff that aligns with your values is something so important, particularly to all of us. And really interesting what you were saying about if something goes viral, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. So thank you so much.